All right. Are we live, Jim? All right, we're live. So thank you if you're tuning in. Thank you for tuning in and uh, looking. And we are um, beginning a new section. So we just finished the last section of Truth for Living where we discussed um, the Word of God. And so now we're moving to the second unit. And so as we looked at the Word of God, now we're looking at the greatness of God. Um, now, it's, it's appropriate that this is how we move. So, so one of the things we looked at when we looked at God's Word, we looked at a lot about it. We looked at the fact that it's inspired. We looked at the fact that it's inerrant. We looked at the fact that it is authoritative for us. But ultimately, why has God's Word been given to us? It's been given to us to do what? To reveal God himself. Now, I think it's important that we keep that in mind. Um, the Bible is not given to us to provide a list of rules and ways to live our lives. It's not a, a moral code book. Although it does include moral imperatives, it's not given to us to just be a basic instructions before leaving earth, as I've seen that Bible acronym. Um, it's also not just given to us to show us the way to salvation, although it does do that. It does show us how we can relate to God. But primarily, the Bible is given to us to show us who God is. And if we, if we start at any of those lesser things, we're not going to truly get the great theme of Scripture. And so as we've now established what God's Word was in the last ten questions that we went through, now we're looking to the greatness of God. We're seeing who God is. And, and when we see who God is, I think we can sort of sum that all up in the fact that God is great. And we're going to look at a number of different things about his greatness as we go through this. Uh, but this is the new section we're looking at, the greatness of God. And so the sort of overarching theme that we're going to be looking at for the next, probably through the new year, is the fact that God is one of a kind and above all in his greatness. There's two major themes there. We're going we're to hit on both of those a little bit, I think, in every one of these questions. But we're going to see his uniqueness and his absolute greatness. So he's one of a kind and that there is no one that is as great as he is. And we have two passages that, are the, that form the theme passages for this section. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord, and your thoughts. And then we see in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 1.17, Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And so those two verses speak about both of those aspects, that God is one of a kind. He is the only one who is God. And then he is above all in his greatness. So some of the themes that we're going to explore as we continue on and, and look at the greatness of God, we're going to look at his uniqueness. We're going to look at his power. We're going to look at his presence, his eternality. We're going to talk about his spirituality, and we'll actually hit on that a little bit today. We'll look at his um, knowledge, and we're also going to look at, you know, God doesn't just provide these things to us so that we can know about him. He provides these truths about him so that it would create a response within us, particularly a response of faith in him and a life lived 
to glorify him. Um, now, when you think of the greatness of God, there are three terms that are often discussed in Christian theology. Can any? I'll give 10 billion Sunday. I haven't given out Sunday school bonus points in a while. 10 billion Sunday school bonus points if you can tell me what those three normal terms that you possibly hear when you talk about the greatness of God. Okay, sovereignty is one, but that's not, these three words are all similar. Omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence. So everybody, because I heard everybody saying so, so those omni words, um, so omnipotence would include his sovereignty, uh, his great power in that. His omnipresence is the fact that he is everywhere. He is present at all places. Not that he is in everything, but that he is everywhere. And that's an important distinction particularly in our day and age where there are people who believe in what we call pantheism, that God is in everything, so that we could even say that God is in this pulpit or in this chair, or most dangerously, that God is in me, not in the same way that we understand union with Christ, and we'll talk about that. And then omniscience, which talks about the fact that God knows everything, that he has all wisdom. So those are sort of the preview of the things to come that we're going to discuss. So we have our first question, all right? And this is what, we're, what the kids are learning back there today uh, and what we're going to be talking about for the next 25, 30, 50, 75, no, not be that long, but for the next, next 25 minutes or so. Does God reveal in his word that he is greater than us? All right, now this one, this is probably one of the longest answers in the catechism that we have here. Ready? Yes. <laughs> yes. So this, this will be an easy answer for the kids to remember, all right? Does God reveal in his word that he is greater than us? Yes, absolutely. Um, in fact, I would say in many ways it is the theme of Scripture, that God is greater than us. Um, because the temptation, and we're going to talk about this in a few moments, the temptation is for us to make ourselves great um, and to consider ourselves great. And, of course, the, the verse for this is the verse that we just read just a few moments ago. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. For my thoughts are not whose thoughts? Your thoughts or our thoughts. Neither are your ways or neither are our ways God's ways, declares Yahweh, declares the Lord. Well, how different are God's ways than man's ways? I mean, maybe, maybe God is, maybe we're close to how God's ways are. Are we close to how God's ways are? No, look at what he says. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. The idea of the heavens being higher than the earth is that there is an infinite gap of space in between them. Um, one of the things we, we know about you know, the universe and everything is that it is constantly expanding. That there is this infinite nothingness that, you know, physicists would tell us, and that the nothingness continues to expand and get bigger and bigger. That there's, there is a constantly growing gap between the heavens and the earth. And that is how different God is from us. Um, if we were to put it maybe in, in western Pennsylvania parlance, uh, it's the difference between a Steelers fan and a Browns fan. All right? Like it's just so far different. Um, that uh, we that there's that they're not alike at all. Now, 
this is where I sort of want us to sit for a little bit and talk about because I think this is one of, even though this is clearly said in God's word, I think this is one of the most neglected realities of who God is. Uh, if you've ever done the Behold Your God series or, or we've gone through that, this is what this series hits hard. Um, and the main thing is that God is not like us. God is not like us. Now, why do you think, I'll put the question out there, why do you think we have such a temptation to conceive of God being like us? All right, sin. That's certainly the number one reason. Ben? Okay. Right. So, so there, is, there is a sense where we walk by sight, not by what? Faith. And so we only see, we only see how other people interact. And so what ends up happening is we feel like God should be like us. We feel like we need to grab God and pull him down to our level. That in certain ways we need to stand over God in judgment of who he is. Because we are the pinnacle or the ultimate authority. I remember seeing on social media, uh, it was either last week or the week before, um, someone had posted a picture, and it was a picture from like a, a, an illustration of the flood. And what it had in the flood was they had, they had the, you know, the ark above, and then you had people that were drowning underneath. And, and part of the, the illustration showed children and babies drowning under, in the flood. And then the caption read, if your God has to destroy everyone because of their sins, then don't talk to me about morality. The idea there was, well, I have the ability to stand in judgment over God as, and to say that he has done something that is immoral. Because what did he do? He killed millions, billions of people with the flood. So how can we establish that God is not like us? There's a number of ways that we can do this. I mean, I think we can begin this by just looking at the end of Genesis chapter 1. Who is made in whose image? Man is made in whose image? Is God made in man's image? No. And that is the great um, flip-flop that humanity has been seeking to do for since, since mankind fell wanting to say that God is made in our, our image, that he is as we conceive of him to be. But I thought we'd step back a little bit and, and understand that God as creator and we as creature, that implies something of necessity that is different about God. And that is that God, first and foremost, has a unique substance. All right? So we're going to get a little philosophical here uh, when, we, when we talk about this. One of the fundamental truths about God is that he is substantially not like us. Now, when I say substantially, I think sometimes we think of that in the, ter in the terms of like mostly or the majority. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the substance of who he is. When we speak of substance, we're speaking of things um, that we, of, the, of the things that we are made up of. So what are, what are human beings made up of? All right, huh? All right, dirt. 
um, we, God formed us together, and then so I went, after we'd been formed together, we were made, the scripture talks about us being made of flesh and blood. Um, we can think about it from a scientific perspective. We have organs. Um, these material organs have all their certain functions. Those organs, the flesh and blood that we're made up of, are, are made up of carbon, and that, that, those, that carbon is made up of molecules. Um, so we look at all these different aspects of what we are made up of, and we are made up of physicality, right? We have physicality. Um, does God have physicality? No. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, I'm going to point out something subtle that perhaps you're not used to with this passage, but I think it is, it is abundantly important. Um, does this sound a little strange to what you've perhaps memorized about this verse, particularly if you've memorized it out of the King James Version? What does, what does the King James Version say? It says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Here, the English Standard Version shows God is spirit. Now, I'm not, not here to poo-poo the King James for this. I understand why they did this, but it's significant that it is God is spirit and God is not, and not that God is a spirit. Why is that important? Well, if God is a spirit, what does that imply about him? That there are other spirits. Jesus is being, I mean, does Jesus say anything accidentally, first of all? All right? What's recorded in Scripture, is it accidentally recorded that way? No. So when you look at the original languages and how this is put out, it is abundantly clear that Jesus is not saying God is a spirit. He's saying that God equals or his substance is spirit. And, of course, the implication there that Jesus is saying to the woman at the well in Samaria is that we must worship him in spirit and in truth. That, and, of course, he's, a, he's addressing the question, well, where should we worship? Should we worship on this mountain or should we worship in Jerusalem? And Jesus is saying it's not a matter of physicality when we worship. That's the main point he's driving home there. But he also is saying something else about who God is. God is not spirit in the same way that the spiritual realm exists. Because um, there are spiritual beings, are there not? But they are not like God, right? God is something other than they are themselves. Um, and so what, what Jesus is emphasizing here is that God is not just a spirit. God is the originator of spirit in the same way that if we were to go to say 1 John chapter 1 and look there and it says God is what? Light. All right? Is God and it's 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 made out the exact same way in the original. Is God a light? What would it imply if we were to say God is a light? That there are other lights or later on in John 1 John chapter 4 where God, where John says God is love. It doesn't say God is a love. And so in those two statements, God is light, God is love, what is it saying about God's relationship to those two things? He is the one who defines them. He is the one who has created them, that they find their clearest 
expression in him, that he is not like other loves, he is not like other lights, he is the one who created all light and all love and all spirituality. So, while tonight we're focusing on the fact that God is not like us, the reality is that he, there is nothing that is like God. He cannot be compared to anything. In fact, we see this in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Now, we have here a term used in scriptures that I think sometimes we don't, we don't truly hash out what it means, and that's the term holy. Notice what is said here in 1 Samuel 2. There is none holy like the Lord. Holy just simply means separate or set apart. Um, one, one Hebrew um, idea of the, of the term that's used here is that, that there are boundaries that are incrossable about who God is. He is completely, this is the term that theologians use, unique. There is no one like him. There is no one even on the same plane as him. We, we see this in Isaiah 57, 15. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity and whose name is holy. Now, what, does it, what would it take for someone to inhabit or to live in eternity? All right? What do, do we live in eternity or do we live in something else? We live in time. We live in a temporal world. All right? Right, things, things are temporary. Things have a beginning and they have a what? An end. Does God live inside of time? He lives in eternity which means he has no beginning and he has no end. That's why in Revelation, Jesus presents himself as the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And, and note, he's not saying that he started and ended, but that he was there at the beginning and he will be there at the end, that he is outside of time. So keeping that in mind, can you see why it is foolishness to say that God is like us? Because he is completely unique in his substance. Um, now, as a result of the passage that we're looking at, there are two particular things that God focuses on. He has unique wisdom. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. For my thoughts are not whose thoughts? Your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. God has unique wisdom. He doesn't rationalize. He doesn't think, ponder, or consider things in the same ways that we do. Um, even the spiritual realm, which is created by him, it does not possess the knowledge and wisdom that God has. So here, here's a great example of that. All right? We have the story of Job. The sons of God present themselves before the Lord at a certain time, and guess who comes up at that time? Satan. Does Satan have omniscience? He doesn't know everything. He doesn't have God's wisdom. And he's like, well, I want you to test Job because I'm certain 
that if you test him and you take away all these blessings, he's going to curse you. Well, here's the problem. Was Satan right? No. Job never cursed God in, in the midst. Now, he struggled with his faith, but he never came to the point where he cursed God and sought to go away. Even though his own wife was saying, you know what? This is a little too much. I just wish you'd go away. So curse God and die. Right? Even in the midst of all that, Job never cursed God, cursed God nor did he fault him uh, wrongly. God has unique wisdom. And even the spiritual realm, even the devil doesn't have that wisdom. Now, this should engender within us absolute confidence in God's way of doing things. Now, here's the thing. Do we always have absolute confidence in God's way of doing things? So what are we doing at those moments? We are trying to pull God down to our level. We're trying to place our thinking and we think, you know, I know God, you have, you are not like me in your substance and you have thoughts that are as, that is far different from mine as the earth and the heavens are. But if you would just do this, how often are our prayers like that? If you would just do this, when Jesus tells us we're to pray, when we pray your kingdom come, your will be done, we are praying to a God who knows perfectly how to accomplish his purposes in all things. And that should engender faith and trust in, in him. The unique wisdom that God possesses enables him to actually know how to accomplish good. And now here's the thing. We've, we've been on planet Earth for six, 7,000 years. Has any person been able to figure out how to do good things in this world? in and of themselves. What is history a constant, constant reminder of? We can't do it. No matter what system we put in place, well, no matter what political system, no matter what governmental system, no matter what religious system we put into place, they all fall short because we do not have perfect wisdom. We are so far from wisdom. And so we're called to trust in a God who does have perfect, and unique wisdom. Unique substance, unique wisdom, and then finally, unique ways. Again, Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, neither are your ways my ways. My ways are higher than your ways. God has unique ways. Since God doesn't think as we do, then should we not be then surprised that he doesn't act as we do? And that's exactly what God is saying here in Isaiah. Um, now, there's great mystery here. Um, think of the story of Joseph. And, and don't, we know the end of the story. That's one of the glories of having Scripture given to us is that we know how the story ends. But I want you to try to put yourself in Joseph's shoes when he's thrown in that pit by his brothers. In that moment, is Joseph thinking, boy, God really is, is doing the right thing here. I, I mean, perhaps he was, but my guess is he probably struggled with that reality when he was in a pit and being sold into slavery. Now, on the other side of it, when Joseph is now 
the second in command of Egypt and his brothers are coming to him, what does he say? What you meant for evil, God used for what? Good. And that, that, is, that, is, that is easy to see on the back end of things. But in the midst of the, of the tribulation, in the midst of the trial, it's hard for us to see that reality. It's mysterious to us. How can this be good? But yet God's ways are not like our ways. We would often choose different paths than the ones that God lays out for us. But our ways are short-sighted. Our knowledge is short-sighted. And so lacking also a broad scope of justice and being tainted by sin, can our ways ever come anywhere close to meeting the ideas and the concepts that God has? No, they cannot. Now, I want us to talk about the sin and this unique wisdom and unique ways. I messed up the PowerPoint, so just, just ignore those um, and look at the first line. I want us to talk about the sin of likening God to man. And this, I think, is probably one of the most fundamental problems that we have. It is, first and foremost, a violation of the first and second commandments. Now, Exodus 20, 3 through 4, it says, You shall have, we know these, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, how many of you ever heard that said, that means that God should come first? You ever heard that said? That's true, but not complete. No one should be on the level that God is. It's not a matter of first among other things on the same level. The idea here literally is you shall have no other gods before your face. That there is no one that you consider on the same level as God. And I think we've done some injustice in how we've discussed this because we've said, well, God needs to come before your career. God needs to come before your family. God needs to come before your finances. God needs to come before all these other things that we think of, your comfort and your ease of life. And is that true? Yes, but what that implies is that those other things are sort of on the same plane. They're nowhere near the plane that God should hold in our lives. There is no one who is on that plane that God inhabits. And then the second commandment is, what should we not do? We should not make for who? For yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. What is he talking about there? I mean, if, if you think about it, if I'm going to make an idol or a graven image, where, where, is, where is the design for that image, that graven image going to come from? It's got to come from me. I've got to imagine that this is what my God is like. And, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to take God, who we've already seen is spirit, provide him in a physical form that I have determined, and I'm going to say, this is my God. That, you know, that was the, the um, golden calf incident was not so much a violation of the first commandment as it was a, as a violation of the second commandment. What, is, what does Moses say? He says, take your gold, we're going to form a God, and then he puts it there and says, this is your God, this is Yahweh, who's brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 
And so the danger is in conceiving of or thinking that God is in some way, shape, or form formed by our imaginations. Now, again, we live in, in the Western world. We are, we are far advanced beyond bowing down to idols and stone and wood. But do we still do the same thing? Absolutely. We think that God is how we want him to be. In fact, you'll hear that over and over again from people saying, well, I think that God is like this, or I think that God is like that. And this is where we have to tie our conception of God to what? The word, to scripture. Because scripture reveals who God is. And when we begin to depart from that, we're not seeing the God who exists, we're seeing a God of our own imaginations. So it's a violation of the first and second commandments. It is secondly a denigration of God's majesty. What was the devil's desire? What was it that he wanted to do that brought him to be cast down from heaven? He wanted to be God. Notice what's said here, Isaiah 40, 12 through 15. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, Son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Now, this is interesting. It starts off by saying the devil is cut down, that he's laid low. What did he want to do? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I'll go above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself what? Like the most high. But what happens? You are brought down. Remember I talked about how holiness in, in one sense has the idea of, of boundaries that can't be crossed? The devil sought to cross those boundaries. And what happened? He's cast down. He didn't go higher. He ended up going lower. Because think of the blasphemy that it is to think that you could be in the position of God. What, what an offense that is to a holy and righteous God. That is why in the second commandment, what does God say? He's a jealous God. No one is like him. And it is, a, it is to defame his character to think that we could be like him. But really, wasn't that the problem in the fall? Look at what the serpent said to Eve. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will what? Be like God. What did the devil want to do? Be like God. And so when we conceive of God in our own minds, if we try to pull him down to our level, what we're really trying to do is claw, crawl, claw our way up to his. And that is the very essence of sin and rebellion against him. So it's a violation of the first and second commandments. It's a denigration of God's majesty. And then finally, it is a denial of reality. Is God like us? No. Wouldn't it be great if the Bible said exactly that? Guess what? It does. 
Psalm 50, 21 through 22. Take your Bibles quickly and turn with me to Psalm 50. He says in uh, Psalm 50, I'm going to read it very quickly. It says, the mighty one, it's a Psalm of Asaph. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth. From the rising of the sun to its setting out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. All right? Can anyone here summon the rising of the sun? Has anyone gone out and said, sun, rise? Anyone done that here? Anybody? No. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Here's the thing. Does God, like, hide who he is from the world? It's written on the tapestry of the skies. The heavens declare his glory. He's given us his word. God is not silent about who he is. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him is a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is a judge. And so now he looks at, at his people, at his people, not the heathen, his people. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am your God. I am God, your God. I don't rebuke you for your sacrifices. You're doing that. Your burnt offerings are continually before me, but I don't accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds? Because are you giving God anything? Notice what he says. Every beast of the forest, who owns it? God does. It's mine. Every cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all the moves on all that moves in the field. Who does it belong to? God. Listen, if I were hungry, I would not tell you because could you feed God? No. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? So again, God is spirit. Offer to God a sacrifice of what? Thanksgiving. And what's the difference between a sacrifice of thanksgiving and a sacrifice on the altar? It's exactly what Jesus said. God's a spirit and they who worship him must worship him in what? Spirit. That's exactly what God is saying here in Psalm 50. Call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or to take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done... And I have been silent. Now he's talking to the wicked. And this is exactly what we see in the world today. Does not the world love a thief? Does not the world love and keep company with adulterers? Don't they have mouths that are swift to speak evil? Tongues that frame deceit? Isn't brother rising up against brother and slandering their own mother's son? And through all this, God has been quiet and then notice what, notice what the wicked think. He says, you thought that I was one like yourself. So what does God do? He rebukes them 
He lays the charge before you. Mark this then. And then here's the key. When we think that God is like us, what are we forgetting? You who forget God. We're not knowing the God who is. Mark this. Because what does God do to people who think and defame him to bring them down to his level? What does he do? What does he say? What is he going to do to people who do that? I will what? Lest I tear you apart. And here's the thing. The almighty, all-powerful greatness of God. Can anyone deliver us from his judgment? No. That's why Jesus says, don't fear him who can kill body, but fear him who can kill both body and soul forever. And who is that? God. So, Numbers 23 reminds us, God is what? Not man. That he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? And I have about another 15 more minutes to talk about the context of this. The context is Balak and Balaam. Um, and we're not going to go there, but it's just, it's just interesting that this is said in the context of someone thinking that God can be bargained with, which he can't. Because he's not thinking of God as he is. He's thinking that God is what? Like a man. So, does God reveal in his word that he is greater than us? Yes. Simple answer. Simple truth. Yes. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, here's the danger of looking at this. If God is so different and so high and so separate from us, can he be known? And the scriptures answer this question for us, and Hosea actually answers this. He says, let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. And he will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Jesus tells us that if we seek him, we will what? Find him if we seek him with all our heart. Not seeking to make him like us, but seeking to know him as he truly is. God is great, and we are not, but he has given us a way to know him through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the truth we find in it. Lord, may we often repent of and confess to you the many times we seek to bring you down to our level, to conceive of you like we are. And Father, may we seek to seek to know you as you have revealed yourself in your word and to find blessing from you as we seek you according to how you have revealed yourself to us. Father, work in our midst through your spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.